0: Hello and welcome to Stranger Stopping Strangers, podcast number 60. A big welcome back to anyone who's returning and thanks for stopping in to anybody who's new this week. Staying the course with my extended opening, if you are listening to this podcast, then you found it. But I do want to make sure for anyone who serves different podcast platforms to get the word out on all the different places that you can find Stranger Stopping Strangers podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, and always downloadable on the website, which is www.strangerstoppingstrangers.com, where I have a little blog about the guests and some artwork that I pick out that kind of is a a reflection of the feeling of the podcast or some poster art from one of the shows or something that just kind of ties in you're on iTunes right now and you dig what you're hearing and you have like 30 seconds, feel free to hit the uh, little star review. Uh, that really helps. And if you have like a minute and are hands free, write a review. Uh, the more I'm learning about podcasting, the more I'm learning that this really helps get the word out. So I really appreciate anything y'all can do. So this week's podcast is Rob Turner Part 2. So if you checked out Rob Turner Part 1, Welcome back. Rob and I made this podcast when he was up in New England in January. And at the very end of the talk, we talk about where we are and how just perfect and cozy the setting is for a cold New England day. And I just want to be sure to say now, just in case some of you don't make it to the end of a podcast, which is something I know I can be definitely guilty of when I'm listening to podcasts, I want to give a very, very heartfelt thank you, thank you, thank you to Rob's dear friends, Doug and Anne Cahill, for lending us their beautiful house to have this conversation in. I just really couldn't imagine a warmer or just really more inviting atmosphere for this wonderful talk. In part one, I mentioned that there are some spectacular Bobby stories, and in this episode, you actually get to hear them. One of the stories is the one about Rob and his friends sneaking into the 1993 inaugural ball to hear Bobby and Rob Wasserman sing Tennessee Waltz. That was a hard track to track down so also a thank you to david gans for sharing the files from tales from the golden road so thank you david the last story that rob tells in song that we plays is from bob performing with rat dog at the hampton beach casino in august 1995 singing throwing stones and you know it's, it was a really emotional day and it, a really fantastic story you know with bob showing up for the fans and, and really all there to to grieve together and the throwing stones is just incredibly emotionally charged. On that note today I'm feeling really emotionally charged. Uh, today is Friday February 9th and yesterday Thursday February 8th 2018 our dear John Perry Barlow passed off. You know, I'm just so sad about it. I'm so sad for his friends, for his family. My dear friend Geraldine was so close to him, and I got an opportunity to meet him last summer at Shoreline um, with Geraldine. Just, uh, just a real heavy heart, and uh, but you know, really grateful for all of the poetry and music that you know has forever changed our world. So you know, I just want to take a minute um, to you know to our glass. Or your bowl, or wherever your pleasure tends, to toast John and say, fare thee well, let your life proceed by its own design, nothing to tell now, let the words be yours. As always, thank you so much for tuning in, and i will catch you soon.
1: We should talk. let it
0: So we are now back, and we're going to hear a little bit about the 1986 tour.
2: Yeah, we're going to skip ahead in the interest of time, but 1986 summer was the first time. Again, my buddy Jamie, um, he and I decided to do the whole tour. We flew out, no, that's the next year, 86, yeah, 86, we drove out to Minnesota, stayed with, uh, with a friend of his, left the car there, flew out to the Greeks. Um, Greek 86 had moments, but not, not the greatest run. Jerry was starting to get sick. Uh, You know, it's not the greatest tour in retrospect at the time. We were having a blast, though. I mean, ultimate Frisbee and a lot before every show and, you know, traveling from city to city, which the first when we got back east, the first show was Minnesota. Also, my first Dylan show, Uh Dylan Petty and the Grateful Dead. It was a co-bill, but I can always say to Bob Dylan, friends of mine, because I ended up chasing him like a puppy, too, particularly right after Jerry died. I was always able to say my first Bob Dylan show, The Grateful Dead, opened for him. It's awesome. And when, and when uh, Tom Petty passed away, I remembered that day because he lo- he's so much younger, you know, than, than Bob at the time. And now that he's gone and Bob's still cranking on is, is like kind of a messed up thing. Um, the real on the ball people went to Alpine and saw Dylan, too, because um, the Dead and Dylan played. And then there were a couple nights off and Dylan, then Dylan played in Minnesota. Then there were a couple nights off, Dylan played Alpine. Then The Dead did two Alpines. And then uh, I remember Cincinnati, remember seeing Big River in Cincinnati on the river, uh, River Bend on the river. Um, I remember trembling with excitement the first time Bob Dylan joined The Dead, which was at Akron, that tour. And then that tour uh, ended. And then the 4th of July, there's footage because they, Farm Aid cut in. Mm -hmm. So when they were in Buffalo on the 4th of July, there's really nice footage out there on YouTube if you want to watch of both a large portion of the Dylan set and the Dead set. Uh, Actually, I think all of them are out there now. That's the cold rain into fire, which was very rare back then, you know, because people used to the Scarlet Fire.
0: Yeah, no, I'm just listening and learning. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. I got nothing. First time ever. I got nothing. I'm just listening. <laughs> but
2: then they ended the tour at RFK and Dylan deferred and let and then opened for them. Um, it, it was really weird because I had, the only time I really had a bad trip, and it was also at the shows where Jerry was really sick and he almost died. And They, um, they say uh, an artist's audience is a reflection of themselves. And I think in the summer of 95, we learned that for sure when the scene was falling apart when he was. But I remember Dylan being in... Leather in a hundred degree heat, dressed in leather with a hoodie, mocking the kids for 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 needing to be sprayed. You know, yeah, you're all younger than me, and I'm up here. You know, uh, the heat doesn't matter me, I was to me. It wasn't about you. That kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, and they did Desolation Row and Baby Blue together. And and if you guys ever hear Bob Weir talk about being in the uncomfortable position of teaching bob dylan his own songs this was the beginning of it he had to relearn desolation because bobby wanted to sing it with him wow and uh i think bobby even did it when at back at buffalo two nights before jerry was sick and left the stage and weird did desolation without jerry with the band and i think that was to demonstrate to bob to dylan this is how we do it so that they two night two shows later they did it together and um
0: Well, and so this is kind of cracking me up. This is like the irony. So we're going back to the 80s. So this is what 30 years ago, 31, 32 Mm -hmm. years ago. And for all them youngins that are listening that fuck with Bob forgetting the lyrics, the disrespect of Bob forgetting the lyrics. I love this story because 30 some odd years ago, he was the one, you know, keeping people on point, you know, keeping, not people. Keeping Bob Dylan on point with his lyrics, right? <laughs> yes. Like, not just people, like, the ultimate lyricist in my book. I mean, I fucking love music. I love Robert Hunter's soundbook. But if you really had to say just lyrics, music, number one, boom, go, iconic music, I go with Dylan. I mean, I, I don't know. I go with Dylan as, like, the... If you had, you know, you had to just pick one, you know, like all together songwriter lyrics, not singer, (laughs) don't get me wrong, not, not live performer, but that. So for him to be schooling him on the lyrics is fucking amazing.
2: And Robert Hunter would agree on the lyrics. I'll say as a singer with Dylan, he may not be note perfect, but he can, he can really get into that But when he's on his game, when he's not like late 80s, early 90s, but like 94 to 2002, he could really articulate in a way that that gets into the character of the song. And so I would uh, disagree as a live performer. There were there were a lot of great moments, but when he was bad, he was bad. But kind of like the dead, you know, when they were bad, they were, I mean, they could get pretty bad.
0: Well, you know what, though? And here's the thing. For me, for just Bob's voice, there are some songs that I've only heard Bob sing that I'm I'm totally into. But again, this is me. A lot of sure. people might disagree on this. This is my own feeling. And I, I I could be proven wrong at some point. It's just at this moment in time, my feeling... I have never heard a Bob Dylan song, to me, that sounds better with Bob singing it than someone else. And I think this became, like, to me, this became my official statement when I heard Jerry sing Positively 4th Street, because I never had heard a cover of Positively 4th Street. And it's one of my very, very, very favorite, favorite lyrical songs of all time, and it gets fucking amazing anyone who's listening and they have a bone to pick with somebody and they're feeling you know They're feeling just kind of pissed off. You go listen to that song You know, he is writing to, To just the most raw feelings And so I think the first time I ever had like a raw feeling for somebody and I heard that song I was just like amazed so hearing Jerry sing it was the first cover I've ever heard and then I started going back and thinking about it and uh yeah, I mean, tangled up in blue and desolation road and uh, along in the watchtower and uh, knocking on heaven's door. Like I don't know, I there's always somebody who I, in my feeling, sings it better, but he wrote it.
2: I mean, I know many people agree with you, and I'm not going to dispute that. I do want to say one thing about positively fourth street, though, to set the context. I mean, in the time in the '60s, it was mostly love songs on the radio and happy songs. So to have a guy come out with a song that starts, you've got a lot of nerve to say you are my friend, when I was down, you just stood there grinning, was so refreshing. That's the kind of thing that inspired people like Joni Mitchell. She has cited that song as an inspiration to become a songwriter. That's all you really need to hear, really. Because, I mean, on, our, on Inside Out WTNs, we quote Joni all the time. I mean, she is just, she's an angel. And she's one of the greatest songwriters ever. And if a song inspired her to, to write songs, that speaks volumes.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful ballad about angst and it was so you know it was so groundbreaking to have a beautiful ballad about angst i'm sure at the time you know i mean i always i really cite the beatles for so many groundbreaking you know changes and things but i i will throw bob into the mix for that from from my perspective and what i know and um uh, again for anyone who has any beefs out there it's available as a ringtone but I will leave that and that's the beginning and it is a ringtone for one person whose name I'll never mention but I have to. no it is it's a fucking ringtone I'll play it for you it's, it's awesome and it's the best thing about my relationship with this person is when it comes on because it always makes me smile you know like the fact that, that you've got a lot of nerve like as soon as it rings it fucking cracks me up every time so just so you know, it's available in ringtones. Anyways.
2: And it also, there's another line that speaks into one of my pet peeves as well. If people are a little extreme, whether it's sports or with politics, that you just want to be on the side. That's winning. You know, the people who, like when there's a, pl- a call reversal, you know, in a football game, and it's a stupid reversal or a terrible call, even if it benefits your team, you should be like, yeah, but that's not right. You know what I mean? Or even if there's something that might not help your party, but it's good for the country. You don't just want to be on the side that's winning. Just, you know, yeah. think bigger.
0: And clearly, it, it, to me, the best line is the last line, right? Like, it just wraps it all up. Like, you'd know what a drag it is to see you just for that moment. I could be you because you'd know what a drag it is to see you. I mean, it's fucking perfection if you're pissed. you know, Like, you just are like... Ugh. But music's supposed to make you feel, right? And right. it makes you feel. And again, it's whether you're feeling good or you're feeling, it, it, it's uh, its just about feeling, you know?
2: Well, like the Mr. Soul, Neil Young. Yeah. I was raised by the praise of a fan who said I upset her. You know, a songwriter, when they've moved you, whether it's happy or sad, they've done their job. But we've get, we've gotten, we're, let's get back to a happier Let's get tunt, back to topic. To Jerry yes. falling into a coma.
1: Yeah. Oh, hey! Yeah! <laughs>
2: I don't know how much you guys realize, but we really almost lost him in 1986. Um, when he went into that coma, uh, there was a point where I, I'm pretty sure the family thought he was, he was a goner, the dead family, and uh, he came out of it, lost his faculties, essentially had to relearn how to play the guitar. And we have Mountain Girl and Merle Saunders, who is, rest his, God rest his soul, who sat there impatiently with him because he was very frustrated but you know they helped him keep his psyche together and for god bless him thank for all of us <laughs> as well as for himself relearn how to play the, the guitar then he started doing gigs at the stone a uh, little club in san francisco that i think he was part owner with paul kantner um not, i don't know for sure but it was a, just a little corner place and I, I wish i had the chance to see him there
0: We, we talk about the Stone in two podcasts ago. Yes. Tommy Fogarty. Hey, that was his first experience with Jerry Garcia. And he was actually across the street at a Black Flag show. And it was across the street from the Stone in like seedy North Beach. And that was the first time he ever like came, you know, in touch with Deadheads. And it was like two shows playing on the same night, like across the street from each other. And yeah, it's a cool story. So Tommy, the Stone. Hey.
2: Reminds me, of Reverend Jeff Mosier talks about how he left a, I think it was a Dave Edmonds show in Atlanta and walked, he was with a, uh, a date and just stepped out and walked across the street and walked into Colonel Hampton Aquarium Rescue <laughs> Unit show and his life was forever changed. Black Flag, great band by the way, Henry Rollins, shout out. Um, but I would have been a Jerry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> actually no he was at. he had never been that was before he even became a deadhead and uh-huh. he didn't go into the Jerry show he just saw like the hippies and the punks like commuting with each other on the street and he had you no know, it was before he became a deadhead and he was so impressed by how they were jamming so loud because he always thought of it as like mellow music and he just only heard it from the outside so it was the peak of the interest but no he, he, he didn't leave the black flag but it was uh, is the beginning of the journey
2: So then he did, The Dead Came Back with three shows in December, early, early, like around the teens, and of course, Touch of Grey first, and uh, you know, that they were back, those shows are a struggle, then I caught The New Year's right after that, and that that's a really strong run, there's one of those shows that doesn't look like much on paper, it's like Scarlet Fire Looks Like Rain, She's Gone, something like that, I think it might be that 29th or something but it was one of the most emotional powerful shows i've ever seen black peter like we were just crying i mean i'm everybody was balling it was he was back we had him we had our boy back and touch of gray at midnight on the 31st there will never ever ever be a touch of gray like that that was pure bliss pure bliss let it grow that night it was wonderful real short third set but whatever we had our boy back so then the spring tour, when they came back east, some of the most mundane songs would blow up. Like Black Peter, I don't mean to call it mundane, but suddenly it was on par with Dew. Because every night Jerry was pouring his heart and soul into it. And I've chosen This Big River because that suddenly became a monster song. Not that it was bad, again, I'm not putting it down... But Garcia just ripping the crap out of it and throwing back and forth with Brent and really charged, energized, focused Jerry on these little piddly first set songs was indicative of he was just as happy to be back as we were. So that's why I've chosen this this Big River, also because it's quick and I knew I had chosen way too much music.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go back. Let's do it. Let's go back. Let's grab some music. So we are going back to April 7th. 1987 big river in
2: it's philly i'm trying to remember if it's the philly spectrum i I don't think so i think this is the one year i saw him at another place called the um i don't know i'll look it up and uh and after the song you'll hear him.
0: we all know after the song and it'll be on the links so enjoy
2: So that was Big River. It was actually from the Meadowlands, Stacy.
0: All righty. <laughs> See, this is, what,
2: this is what I did. I went through all the Big Rivers from that tour because I didn't remember which one, and that, that was the most explosive one. But point being, a lot of the mundane songs became big monster things that spring of 87. Summer of 87, I again did the whole tour that, that we had the Dylan. Um, that's a whole, we could do a podcast on summer of 87 alone. So let's skip it and maybe do that someday. All right. Fall of 87, I'll point out one thing. Back to Crosby, Stills, and Nash. They played at Great Woods right out here on a Sunday night and a Monday afternoon. The Monday was Labor Day. And The Dead played in Providence that night. So I drove from Boston to um, Great Woods. Got my tickets, got releases. Was third row, sitting next to my college sweetheart. who um, And Stephen Stills gave me the greatest compliment. He was oogling her from the stage. (laughs) Lisa, beautiful, beautiful woman. She still is, I'm sure I haven't seen her in a while. Beautiful woman inside and out, Lisa Hankoff. And then uh, that night, the Dead show was not that great. Um, got into second set, not bad, but not that great. And they get to the end of it. They get into good loving. And as Bobby's singing the out chorus, Jerry rips into La Bamba, which was on the charts at the time, Richie Valen's version from the movie, with Lou yeah. Diamond Phillips coming out of nowhere to play the role. We, we talk about that with Steve Berlin in my Inside Out WTNS podcast. Don't ask me what episode, but Steve Berlin um that was just crazy to see the dead do a song that was on the charts
0: and that was los lobos that was playing that right right it was a richie Richie valens song song and los lobos was the ones that revived it i remember yeah that that i remember and (laughs) jerry
2: was a los lobos yeah and
0: los lobos used to open for them in the bay area and fairly often i want to say like not all the time but i definitely caught los lobos on um uh, remember they did it for the camping shows and they look at a lot of the credits like the Laguna Seca or when they would have like the weekends Los Lobos would come and open up and yeah Lou Diamond I, Phillips and I remember the whole thing
2: yeah I think they were part of the one If when people ask me what Grateful Dead show I most regret missing I think Los Lobos was part of one when Santana played with them in 88 were you at that?
0: No but I probably pretended I have I think my sister was at that <laughs> I think that's one of my uh, I think that's one of my stolen memories so uh, uh, one degree of separation <laughs> <laughs> no I wasn't no, I but he
2: came out he comes out with them one night and they do midnight hour and uh is it uh you know good morning little school girl it's so funny because Carlos comes out and rips this solo that's just gorgeous and then there's a little lull, and then Brent takes a solo and I talked to friends after it that were up front and again, they said, Jerry, Carlos finished the show and looked at Jerry. And Jerry was like, I'm not following that shit. And just was like, Brent, take over. That's awesome. And then if you listen, the next night, he comes out, Carlos comes out during Ico. But they've already started playing the song. Jerry's playing a solo and Carlos comes out and just starts soloing right over him. And then Jerry cuts him off right back to go back to the verse. So it's one of those little funny moments.
0: Well, and you know, the thing about Carlos Santana that I love, and again, we're talking about all kinds of music, but you know, <laughs> Uh, as we should. That we're having a good time. Carlos Santana is in one of those categories that I've always thought is something really special about Jerry. Is it's, it's what I call the difference between a musician and an artist. Because if you can hear them playing without any vocals or anything, you just know it's them it's, you know, it's like any art, like a winemaker. You just can taste that it's their wine or a a chef. You just know it's their recipe. And Carlos Santana, I put into that group, you know, with Eric Clapton and with Jerry Garcia and like those guitarists that you just, you you just, you can just hear them. Like, you know, so to hear them dueling their different styles, because they just, it's like a voice. Like their guitar to me is like a voice. Like you can hear them really specifically so that's fucking awesome and that's that's always been my feeling about art the difference between a musician and an artist and yeah you can translate that to all kinds of you know different artistry
2: I, I was like the winemaker comparison because the white shit you know <laughs> profoundly distinctive you mean like, Profound- immediately distinctive. like immediately
0: distinctive yeah and I mean that's is I think that's the goal though for you know for musicians and for for anyone who's an artist is to be able to experience what you've produced, what you've created, and just know it's you without there being, again, whether it's a recipe or whether it's musical notes or whatever it is, you know?
2: And and as I've told you, I often talk to people who work in the industry, and they're often frustrated with artists. And I've even heard this about Weir, when they, if they're sitting in with a band or they're doing some kind of casual gig, that they want their rig and they want things just so. And that's because, to some, I don't know to, to what extent, but at least to some extent, because they want that distinct, they want their sound to be just so, because the people who pay or travel or do whatever to listen, they want that too. Yeah. So in the short term, it's annoying, but over the course of time, it is imperative, so.
0: I, I completely agree.
2: So anyways, that, that was the, the fall, did a bunch of shows the fall of 87, the band was still cooking. I, don't, I did not do the New Year's run though, that I remember being with Lisa Hankoff, in Montclair, New Jersey, and she had, had it, hosted a house party. And then we listened to the show on the radio, and it was in the West Coast, so it started, I guess the Dead set started like one in the morning. So I remember everybody was crashed out at the end when they did like Banana Boat Song in the middle of Ico and Women, and I remember dancing with her amidst people. It was like dancing at Jonestown, not to be morbid, but everybody (laughs) was asleep and crashed. We were stepping over people, dancing and spinning. Very, very fun memory. Not all the memories are at the shows, you know? And then they played Knockin' and we calmed down, and then um, the show ended and our night went on, but um, wonderful. So many memories. So then spring of 88, one thing that pops up to me, again with Lisa, um, we she made us late leaving for Hartford, <laughs> and um, probably the most maniacal driving I've ever done. As I just did the stretch, and this reminded me of it on 84. I mean, literally I mean, there was traffic, and I would drive up off ramps to get around it. I was driving in a broke-down lane. Uh, the, the, which I guess to Massachusetts people isn't so strange because you're allowed to do it here on some of the highways, but not in Hartford. I mean, I drove like an idiot. I would never, ever drive that way now. Even just a couple years later, I wouldn't drive like that. I drove like a jerk, but got there just in time to see the only time I ever saw him open with greatest story ever told.
0: So it was all worth it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's a price you pay.
2: But that's the first of three nights and Jerry lost his voice. To such an extent that when he finished Black Peter, if you listen to the audience version of the 1988 Hartford run, first night, the Black Peter, you hear a little thud after he sings the last thing. Jerry pulled his mic out and threw it down with frustration. I've never, another thing that I never saw before or again. Freaky.
0: No, I don't think I ever saw that. Very cool.
2: And then the third night though, I I missed the second night, went home to actually, I actually did pay attention to school. Went home, took care of school and came right back for the third night. And Jerry got his voice back and was just so happy and it's wonderful and there's a smokestack there where he's all over it and there's a great Ico. I think they played Louis Louis for the first time and just the band was enlivened and then the Worcester run after that is nutso. Like the first set, the first night of that is like a second set. They do big railroad round and round I think to end the first set and it's like second set energy. It's crazy. And again, I think it's coming off Jerry's frustration and then rejuvenation.
0: Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm, Again, loss of words, for, <laughs> <laughs> which is not common. I'm just listening.
2: Um, let's see, uh, 88, I did a bunch of stuff. And then spring of 89, I took off. That was the senior year. And I really was focusing. I thought I was going to have a career. I thought I was going to get married and all this stuff. Didn't quite materialize. One of those every time I, I think I'm out, they pull me back in kind of things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so how old are you, senior? So You're 21, 22.
2: Yeah, 89, I'm 22, because I was born in 66, but toward the end of the year. So, yeah. And I, I don't, I remember JFK, the one they released. I remember the blow away. One quick note everybody talks about that blow away as they should. It's not only the best version of that song, it may be Brent's shining moment with the band. But if you listen, when he says, Oh, I'm getting chills. When he says, Put your hands in the, in the air, a breeze came over. And he said, Can you feel that? A breeze, like it was wild and he said can you feel that that's love i mean we all it was one of those connectivity moments we were all looking at each other like what the what the and it's during blow it's this isn't happening during dark star it's happening during blow away a song i love but a lot of people mocked at that time a lot of people really mocked that song
0: well, and I think that's so like part of Brent and like the retrospective part of Brent. Like I feel like at the time in the late 80s, it's the whole you don't know what you have until you lose it. Mm-hmm. Thing, you know, I feel like Brent was just when I joined the scene in the late 80s and he was so just part of the band, you know, I hadn't gone through the different genres that the older deadheads had, you know, through Pigpen and through Keith. So to me, it was just Brent. So 1989 and you are going to Deer Creek. Tell me a little bit about that show.
2: So it's the first uh, ever, well, dead show at Deer Creek. This is 89. They had just opened the venue that year. And one thing we always knew, and actually one of the reasons the dead caution venues not to have the dead right away when they open, is that we would know it's a new venue. And some of us, I guess, take advantage. like
1: Hang
0: around for a little while. (laughs) Yeah, well,
2: I I would go in and clear my bladder. (laughs) and walk up front and stay. I just did it at the Bruins game the other night. I, I cleared my bladder, I went four rows off the ice, and I stayed there for the entire game. Um, that's that's the way to do it. You don't wanna move and have to come back. So at Deer Creek, I was right in front of, and and I, not to be rude, there were people who had seats who had paid for it, made friends with them, smoked them down. Um, if, they, if they balked, we laughed. It wasn't like a hostile situation. Um, I was just gonna hang on the rail, boogie a little, and stare at the stage like it was a Zabruder film, you know? And um, so, as I was talking about, um, Jerry at the point was toying with this meaty or whatever Sinclair guitar nuts could tell you better. I constantly get corrected about this. But he essentially could make a horn sound, a flute, all these different sounds with his guitar. In summer of 89, he was just starting to use it. He was only using it during space until Deer Creek. He'd use it. They came out of space with China Doll. And at first, it seemed to be working. And then he got to his solo... And it tweaked out and made this weird noise. And Jerry made this like crazy face and had to go back to his guitar. I think Brent stepped up. I think it's the only broke down where Brent take, or one of the few, not broke down, China Doll, maybe the only China Doll with Brent taking a solo. And and there's two instrumental breaks because of this accident. Mm -hmm. So then Alpine was next. And um, that first night of Alpine, they've released it on video there have been other shows that I thought were the best Dead shows I've ever seen, and I can't argue with the experience, but when I go back and listen, the quality of performance, what holds up, this? the first night of Alpine 89 is just a spectacular show where they are on fire. Jerry's starting to ease in that little thing at different points, and um, ugh, just full-on massive Grateful Dead. Bruce Hornsby is on the end of my row to the left. <laughs> and um we're gonna play music never stopped from that night because uh it's a song about what it's all about really it's kind of the most autobiographical song perhaps in the repertoire
0: a band beyond description
2: sure yeah (laughs) music playing the band i I think whether it's grateful dead Humphreys mcgee or uh dopapod you know the best moments are when the music plays the band when it's just happening and um this music never stopped and just and i'll tell another story about how bobby stepped on the energy of what could have been even better run still was a great run the next night but for now this is music never stopped from the first night alpine valley 89
0: enjoy
3: The rainbow full of the sound. There's flowers, bees and clowns. Everybody's
1: dancing.
3: Love the man can do so visit We forgot down the time They're a band, they description We'll be back in
0: a little bit. Well, back from 1989, and you know we are going. There's there's more songs, there's more stories. Again, this could be fucking four hours, but we are going to jump into the 90s because Rob has two really special stories and songs, and they're just well, talk about elusive. So this is my moment to say thank you david gans and the grateful dead radio hour thank you thank you thank you because this was the elusive track and when you came to me you said can we grab this from the 1993 inaugural ball and i looked and yeah.
2: It's nowhere. It is
0: nowhere. But you had heard it on the radio, on the Gripple Dead Radio Hour. So
2: Actually, someone on ratdog.org reminded me. I'll get that name before in another break. Uh, reminded me that it had aired and suggested that I reach out to Dave again. So I'm to give a shout-out uh, by, by dog handle, dog org handle. I'll give a shout-out.
0: <laughs> so you sent David an email, and David sent us the track. So... Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for having this elusive track available for this super cool story. So, I want to hear the story. I know there's a story, but I haven't heard the story, so I want to hear the story.
2: Clinton had been won the election, and it was Inauguration Day, 1993. And at the time, I was in D.C. a lot. I had a couple friends who had places, one of which, Dave Sislavsky, who's given me permission. We actually chatted up, trying to remember the story, put our heads together on this one so it could be told, because I, I don't think I've ever told this in public before, but... I was the driving force at first because he didn't think we'd ever get in. And rightfully so, because it was, it was a tough one. It was, it's, it, it was the Tennessee ball. At the, I think it was the Washington Hilton. And I actually went down early in the day to kind of scope it out, you know, to see what was going on. And they were sound checking. And I stood on this uh, pole right in front of the stage and watched Lou Reed and Rob Rossman sound check and Bruce Coburn and Rob Rossman. And Bob Weir was walking back and forth. And I talked to him before, but tried to talk to him about music and it hadn't gone well. And um, there was a logging bill that I knew he was part of, so I stopped him. And it's just one of the times he walked by, I said, hey, Bob. He's like, yeah. And I said, hey, whatever happened to that logging bill? And he starts telling me about Alan Simpson, a Republican that stopped it, and how it refreshed him, and then starts talking about Al Gore, and it just, just talking, talking. Right. So I had this great moment with Bobby, um, and then he went on his way, but that's not pertinent to the story as much as the fact that I really walked around and got the lay of the land found out where everything was just in case because we came back we tried we I rented tuxes so that we would blend in we tried everything to get in we tried buying tickets we tried bribing people it was like no 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 so we left we were in the parking garage and I was like well wait a minute what if you worked here how would you go in And my friend Dave, like, kind of looked around and saw two people walking. He's like, wait a minute, what about those people? And so we walk over. These people go over to, like, a service elevator and get in. And we just get in with them in our tuxes. And there were no numbers on the elevator. It was all letters. So we were like, oh, God. And they hit one. And we just were like, I just hit another one, you know, trying to blend in and not look weird, you know. So we go up to a floor. The door opens, and there's a guy with a wand. And they get out. And he wand's him, and they go on, and we and we get the elevator door shuts, and we both look at each other like what? And we go,
1: that's the floor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
3: That's the floor.
2: So we um, we go up, and and um, and I, I I turn to Dave and I say, look, let's go back to that floor, and then look, just act like you'd rather be anywhere but here, and just get wanted, and then follow me. So we go back, we step out, and the guy the guy says, you going in? We go yeah. He wand's us. We go in. And I find the ballroom that's adjacent to where this show is going to happen. And there's a military dinner going on. So it's we like had,
0: pentagon shit, yes. man. It's like this, like top secret pentagon shit going down.
2: They're all dressed in their, right. you know, and they're all. For, it's a very formal military dinner, okay. and we had to just again stone face, just kind of make our way through.
0: No, no acid, right? No, no.
2: stone sober.
0: <laughs> just the, checking, because that would have been the trip of all times. Just no, saying, it. no, 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 okay. sober, sober as a church
2: subject. mouse's daughter. Okay, um, so. uh... And we go into to the room, but since I Jerry Jeff Walker was performing, and my apologies to his fans, I know he's wonderful, but he was on the opposite stage of what we wanted to see. So the other stage had no one in front of it. So we walked over and stood in the front row and waited, and Jerry Jeff finished, and they threw it over to this stage, and first it was Roseanne Cash, and then Bobby with Wasserman, and we're going to play the first track when this is the Tennessee Waltz. This is the only known version of Bob Weir performing Tennessee Waltz in, in person that I know of. And it, it's uh, in the immediate wake of Al and Tipper Gore addressing the crowd. This is just freshly inaugurated as Vice President Al Gore. And they waltzed. Alan Tipper waltzed. And uh, then during Bombs Away, they walked across the front and were like greeting people in the front. Uh, then Bruce Coburn played and Uh, my friend Jefferson Waffle will correct me but I do believe this is an ironic moment he used to do back then a a rap about he had a song called Stolen Land and it was about how we kind of took the land from Indians and all that and in the middle of his rap going through all this he got interrupted because the president had showed up (laughs) irony so yes. yeah, I, the, Bill Clinton talked to us and Hillary and then they walked in front and I actually got to kiss. I didn't really get to near any Bill, but I kissed Hillary and looked her right in the eye and thanked her for coming and congratulated her. Wow. Um, and then Lou Reed played. It was a stunning Lou Reed performance. And then they all played together, including Roseanne, and even Paul Simon Paul came Simon, over. Paul Simon,
0: yeah. Because I found a recording, but not the Tennessee Waltz. There was something on YouTube that I downloaded, but it didn't have this part. It was another part at the end with Paul Simon playing it or something. I
2: don't right, know. they did off-the-cuff covers, they like Ruby, shit, yeah. Ruby, Ruby, she's my baby, stuff yeah. like that. And it was like a quick five, six-song set. Had the feel of a dead third set, kind of ragged but right, if you will. Right. But um, I will never, ever forget it for the rest of my life, and... Um, yeah, my buddy Dave is one of the few people that would have had the, had the cojones to, you know, try to elude the Secret Service just to see Bob Weir.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fucking awesome. Let's go hear it. Let's go hear it. And again, this goes back to the previous story up to now, the ultimate elusive track. The ultimate story and elusive track. So and this is exciting.
2: Thank you, David Gans. GDHour.com. Truth and Fun is his company. Check him out. David's out there performing. Um, If you've come into your town, check out David Gans and request Shut Up and Listen because it's a great song about people talking at shows. And I always, always appreciate David Gans for writing that song.
0: Thank you, David. Let's enjoy.
3: To my darling, and while they were dancing, my friend stole my sweetheart from me. I remember. I
1: While they were dancing my friends stole my sweet heart for me And i remember the night in the tennessee once only you know how much i had lost Yes i lost my little dog The night they were playing
3: Congratulations to all of us, most particularly Bill and Al, but to all of us.
0: Well, back from that joyful, fun story, and we have one more story that is just, it, it has to be told, and it, it's not as joyful, but it's really important, and I actually just heard you talking about this on your podcast because you sent me a link to the podcast that you talk about this and I listened to it and I want to hear it from another angle.
2: It's two stories actually. It's
0: two stories. Because
2: I might not always wear Grateful Dead stuff. I haven't had Grateful Dead stickers on my car since college and I don't, I'm not one to like talk about the community and all this uh, as articulately and effusively as you do or a lot of others. But it means an incredible amount to me. I mean, it's the only consistent thing in my life has been music and the Grateful Dead is the pinnacle of it. So it made sense that when my father passed away, I was at a Dead & Company show in Chicago. And um, it, uh, I found out just before drum, I, I think it was, yeah, I found out just as the, they were going into Scarlet Begonia's. I, I had walked up and called my sister, got the news, wandered around aimlessly, didn't know what to do. Wasn't really even paying attention to the music and all of a sudden I hear Otiel Burbage say long-distance runner What you stand there for get up get out get out of the door and I did I left the show. I did just wasn't right to be there and I My stepmother and I haven't had the best relationship But there was no person in the world I wanted to talk to more at that moment than her and, and it was very hard to hear on the phone in in Wrigley even in the furthest away from the stage so I left and did get to talk to her and The thing that was amazing to me was that even being outside of the building, the music was still speaking to me. Like lyrics of Days Between, particularly The World Grows Dark and Mean. And um, I don't know the others, but uh, I remember at some point walking under the L. I I wasn't even thinking about where I was going. I was just walking. And the, the L train going by and fading away and being replaced by the not fade away the, the uh, crowd singing i Fade Away with the band. And it was just so weird. It was like the community, even though I left the show, I was still being supported by the community. It was like they were this big mattress keeping me from free fall, you know? And um, so then it reminded me of the day Jerry died because I actually was on tour with Bobby then. I had seen the night before he had played with the band Rat Dog and the Band co build on Central Park I think to this day still the only time I ever saw a show in Central Park and um, we were driving toward Hampton Beach where he was to play the next night and we were in Hartford I remember we popped out we had a CD it was early CDs were early and we were listening to early early dead you know can't come down that kind of stuff right we popped it out, and because I was a radio dork, I'm always, I knew all the markets at the time and what the radio stations were, and I always wanted to check in, hey, what's going on, you know, because I've been a radio nerd longer than I've been a music nerd. And we pop it out, and I do believe it was Slipknot from One from the Vault that was on, I think, HCN, not CCC, WHCN, not sure about that, but, and we rocked it, we were cranked it, and we were, oh my God, it's on the radio, you know, and they played the Franklins, and, and then it ends, and the DJ comes on. And Garcia Band had toured in 91, 93, and this is 95. So we thought Garcia Band tour dates were coming on. So when the DJ said, well, we never thought we'd be saying it, we were like, he's going to play Hartford. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jerry's going to do Bushnell instead of the Civic Center or something like that. And uh, no, that Jerry had passed. And uh, we were we were floored. And... Um,
0: I just got the chills.
2: Yeah, that was. Yeah. A, I'll never forget that moment. I was literally right coming down. If you ever know, coming through Hartford, coming east... And you dip down and you're right in downtown Hartford. So we were a stone's throw away from Hartford Civic Center where I'd seen so many great dead shows. And that's where I was when I found out that Jerry had died. And again, sometimes when your friend is in despair, that can help you. Because my friend that I was with took it much harder. Thought the show didn't want to go to Hampton. Like we pulled over to rest area and and I let him freak out. And the fact that he was so sad made kept helped me keep it together. Quite frankly, I didn't. it didn't really hit me until a Bob Dylan show in Portland that fall, when he played Visions of Johanna, I broke down and cried through the whole thing. And I really hadn't cried about Jerry before that. It's a weird thing, this music world. But I finally, anyways, talked my friend into getting out of this rest area and let's just let's just go up to Hampton. Let's just let's just go just in case because if he doesn't play, there'll be heads up there. We'll want to be with the community. We
0: can all be together,
2: right? And we didn't have tickets, so we went up there, and sure enough. Uh, we played the gig. I, I have it on pretty good authority through circles other than the dead that Bobby did have a flight and could easily have left that day and chose to play the gig for us. And it was the beginning of, like you said, in the 80s, we would all, Bobby was the guy we made fun of. For the men, probably because we're jealous because he got a lot of the female attention. But also he wore pink eyes odds and Madonna shirts and cut off shorts and cut off Jerry during one Scarlet R's. But this was the beginning of understanding that he was actually the most down-to-earth guy in the band. And, and even though he made fun of the tie-dyes, mm. he's dialed in, you know. And so he played the gig, and this, this, this was a heavy night. And this was the community all helping out each other in the most obvious way. And, and some, like, lyrics would take on a whole new meaning. Like, even Bombs Away, I've changed the tune I've danced to in this big old crazy world. That suddenly meant something completely different. And this was happening every song. If you look at the set list, it might not look like a tribute, but if you really break down the lyrics and think about what had just happened, there are little moments of lyrics that suddenly took on a totally different meaning. And uh, so then they get to throw in stones, which we're going to play, right? Yes. And if you listen to the futures here, we are it, we are on our own. When he starts saying, Papa's gone and we're on our own, which there is no other version where he says that. The, you, you, you talk about thick air, there was thick air in that room. Like every person in that room became emotional, became one. And Mr. Stoic, Bobby, even had a little tear. And it was just, it was just very heavy, very heavy. Um, and then they left. They returned for like the most haunting and beautiful knocking on heaven's door you'll ever want to hear again. With weird Mr. Stoic with tears in his eyes, and left us singing it. Singing along, knock, knock, knocking on him, and the band left, and we were singing knock, knock, and crowd segued into not fade away.
0: Wow, that's so beautiful. Never, never seen that
2: before since.
0: Did the band play along with it, or the band? Band had already been gone. Right, they had just, they had just taken it.
2: Yes, and another thing, Hampton Beach Club Casino, which is a great room, and I don't know what it's like now is fan friendly but at the time not known as the most fan friendly place they actually kind of had a chip on their shoulder about the hippie stuff but on that night they had speakers out in the parking lot so even people who didn't get in I mean we had a really hard time getting tickets but we did just just before doors I think we got tickets and
0: no and I was just going to say hearing the story and sitting here I mean I don't know I mean it's been said just in this podcast, I mean, the magic. I mean, here you are. Here you are, <laughs> New Englander, that went to be you. Right. And you're here. We're sitting here in person. And it was logistics. It's going to start snowing. But we made it happen. And you're telling the story at home in New England and talking about Hartford and driving up in Hampton. And it's just, it's really full circle, you know, just the people and being at your friend's house and your friend that you went to California with. And... I I mean, I just love the unity of you, you know, of the the story and and the significance of you telling the story here, you know, in Massachusetts.
2: In a friend's house, Doug Cahill, who was like the older guy, we would go to his house to listen to the dead. He would come up with the greatest tapes. Uh, Dylan would call up bringing it all back home. Dickie Betts would say, going back where it all begins
0: it's very full circle. And even the logistics of figuring out where we were gonna tape this podcast. I mean, honestly sitting here in this beautiful living room there 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 is no more perfect place, right?
2: Yeah, I wanted to shine a light on a favorite venue, but they um they balked.
0: This is perfect though. I mean, we're on a couch, I got a pillow, I mean this is if it wasn't for the impending snow, I yeah, I mean, I'd be I, I'd be wanting to you know curl up here all night and talk. Dad, it's fucking awesome. Thank you. I'm so honored. I mean, this is again, just thank you.
2: Thank you for the time. Maybe we'll do it again in August and move into the '90s and get to some of the other stuff we didn't get to do.
0: Okay, well, let's go back and hear it. Let's uh, let's go to uh, let's go to August 9th, nineteen ninety five.
2: Get your Kleenex out.
0: Rat Dog, Throwing Stones. Everybody enjoy, and we'll come back for a goodbye.
3: Standing side of Dizzy with eternity Painted with a skinless sky And rushing some cross the sea Going home for you and me Peaceful plates There's all looks from space the Closer look reveals the human race Full of hope, full of grace since the human face But afraid We merely a home to waste There's a feeling down here We can't fuck that How's it going to mean You just care oh. Always awake, always around Singing ashes, ashes, all fall down Singing ashes, ashes, all fall down and the ball revolves On the nighttime power. And again the hunt begins And again the blood will call off. by and by again The morning sun will rise. the darkness There it goes from some men's life Oh well, I know no. School of sidewalks And it rolls the streets Staking turf Dividing up meat Nightmare Smoke He's the favorite And it's you and me You and me flash Played in ghetto nine.
1: Rudy's looking for a fight
3: Red cat alley Roll them bone Need that cash To feed that Jones The politics Throwing stones, singing ashes, ashes off oh, Now singing ashes, ashes off oh. Anymore the pit stop bosses on the dice That's right Any way they fall, guess who gets to pay the price Singing funny green is the only way Selling guns Right there today So the kids, they dance and shake their bones Politician throwing stones, singing ashes, ashes all fall down Tell us what to think If the spirit's sleeping Then the flesh is in This is page We're beneath the garden Stole the future's here We are it We We are on our own We are on our own We are on our own You ha
0: From that and there's really no words you know to talk about that song but we do want to say goodbye so we're gonna end with uh, a trip over to meet your girl and head back to uh where i come from because the impending snowstorm
2: yeah thank you for coming out of your way to uh i'm only up here for a week and stacy really made an effort to come all the way from where near near springfield right
0: i am in the western massachusetts area
2: yes and we are in natick now not far from where i grew up and um Thank you again to Doug and Ann Cahill. And are you looking forward to meeting Birdie? Birdie named after Charlie Parker and Larry Bird?
0: I mean, I'm always stoked to meet a dog. A special dog, a special little girl dog of yours. I am like, yeah, I'd be headed straight home because of the snow, but I got to go meet the girl. So, yes, I'm stoked. So, right on. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And thank you for being here. And this will definitely be, like, the first of many because we're teammates and friends and
2: yeah on that future on that thank you rj and tom and everybody with osiris pod looking forward to seth and myself being part of that i've got other great ideas for podcasts and um great things ahead podcasting is the way of the future so you pips out there podcast ignorant publicists you better snap out of it we are the airwaves we are the future so pay attention
0: the future is here and we are on our own. <laughs> Bye.
2: Uh, what's what's the Dylan line? Um, your sons and your daughters be on your command. Oh, gosh. What's the, the future? The Dylan line and times are a- changing. Well, keep your eyes wide. The chance won't come again, but <laughs> that's not it. But keep your eyes wide, folks.
0: Bye.
3: I'm of gold.